When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. And welcome to T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. The most fun you'll ever listen to while you're folding your clothes. Now let's get this straight. This is not your average podcast. T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio is super fun, super crazy. It's pretty much an in-your-face conversation. That's the good thing about us. We don't do interviews. We do conversations. All of my guests, all of my co-hosts, we chill. We drink, we play games, we have the song of the week, we have the creative curse word of the week. As long as you're having fun as our guest. Speaking of guests, each week I'm going to go through my whole contact list and dive head first into the world of music, gaming, exotic cars, tech, strippers probably, doctors probably, probably strippers that are only stripping so they can pay for tuition to become a doctor. You never know. My wife is a certified bartender. She'll make you a drink while you're here. We'll get you drunk and make you play VR after. It's a lot going on, but that's what it's all about over here at T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. See you soon, baby! Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. When the big Celtics news dropped on Wednesday, I knew I needed to talk to Jared Weiss of The Athletic, so plugged in on the Celtics, and to kind of get a sense of not only where these decisions came from, but where the organization is going from here. Boston in such a fascinating situation when you think about their talent and the pressures that they are under, including Brad Stevens in his new roles, so the coaching search and everything else. So we cover some the ground too, but that is the heart of the foundation of the conversation with Jared Weiss. I hope you really enjoy it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Danny, how is your collarbone doing? It's all right. I mean, going through the going through the recovery process. Um, thankfully, I'm in the point now where it's more stiff than painful. Like, you know, like sometimes it's like, ah, it's a little bit creaky, but that's a lot better, you know, if we're, if we're, if we're choosing between the two. Sounds so, like you're describing the Clipper season right now. Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> oh. no. I I have officially given up on predict like on on thinking that I will be successful predicting the Clippers. Like I every every time I think I understand where things are going, I'm wrong. So I'm just I'm just done with that. It is just a factor for me of this this iteration of the team. Um, but I I texted you mere minutes after the the news dropped on Wednesday and said, hey, like I'm we'll want to talk at some point. Was this something that people more in the know like you had an idea was coming or was this a surprise to you as well? It's funny. I don't have any recollection of that text because yesterday was so (laughs) insane. But but I guess I'm here. So you must have texted me that, right? Um, Yeah, I've I've gotten asked this question a hundred times in the last 24 hours. And the answer is no surprise on Ainge, obvious surprise on Brad. And anyone that says... They weren't surprised by the news of Brad Stevens is like kind of ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Yeah, and and the age part of it, I mean, especially considering uh, the it was a second heart attack, I believe, that he had in 2019, and all of those challenges. I mean, it seemed like this was a possibility. It is a very taxing job, and also at a, at a certain point, and then we'll get into this a little bit in terms of the job that Brad Stevens has now. 
Like, I think that this part of building the Celtics is actually would probably be less interesting for Ainge than some of the earlier stage stuff. So I, you know, people had said, like, could he get fired? And I'm like, no, he's not going to get fired. Like, Ainge has, it seemed to me like he has so much latitude from ownership that he could, you know, yeah, this last year wasn't necessarily the best from a GM perspective. But yeah, the possibility of him just not wanting to do it anymore, that definitely seemed plausible to me. Sure. I don't think he ever would have gotten fired, but he definitely could have gotten retired. And, you know, maybe there's a little bit of that happening here. I would imagine Ainge walking away is probably primarily for him and for his family and what he said. You know, so you can make up excuses to you know cover the real reason. But when you're saying... I was laying in a hospital bed and my life seemed like it was on the line and my family was begging me to retire so that I don't die. That's a pretty compelling reason to retire. Uh, So honestly, I was a little surprised that he returned so quickly from that. Um, And especially now after hearing what he had to say, it's kind of shocking he returned at all. Um, But yeah, I, I just think that this year, like the team had to dive out of the tax at a time when they needed to really push forward to try to save things. Yeah, it's, you're right that they're just in this they're in this like they have to take a bit of either a bit of a step back or find a way to take a massive leap forward with this team right now. And so that is kind of a good time for him to walk away and have a new voice and leadership uh, determine how they make that path forward. So the timing of this does make sense. Yeah, I think that it does as well. And as you said before, the Stevens part of this was really stunning and, and kind of the way I mean, it was it was rapid fire. I was fortunate. I mean, I'm probably one of the relatively few West Coast writers who happened to be awake at seven in the morning six or seven in the morning pacific time i guess that's you know recovering from surgery i just i was just awake and i so at first it for let's call it a minute it might have been two minutes it kind of looked like brad stevens was getting the rock divers the tom thibodeau getting both titles and i'm like oh that's gonna be really bad but then in some ways him taking over and leaving coaching was more shocking just because Brad Stevens, you know, still a relatively young guy even though he's been coaching the Celtics for a while now and not his first job clearly. But uh, the more I thought about it, especially with some of the context that has come out over the last time over over you know the experience in the bubble and his kids and everything else, it it's one of those things that you didn't see coming just because coaches are coaches, but it also it makes intuitive sense to me that he would be interested in something different. For sure. And, um, you know, the, the question that I asked at the press conference was literally, why didn't you want to be rock divers and why didn't the organization want you to be rock divers? I did not use the rock divers joke. I don't think that would have gone over as easily. No, um, it would so, not have. Yeah, and and you know so, the rules yeah. on explaining the joke or explaining the reference. Of course. I'm sure I'm sure Brad would have immediately been, you know, every time I listen to the dunked on, I think about why would I want to do that? But so um, he Im- like immediately said it's too much. Like, I think he said it before I finished asking the question and then Wick Grosbeck their managing partner immediately said uh that's those are two jobs at the Celtics organization and then their other owner Steve Akliuka he kind of went into why they don't think it's uh it's something that is possible to do and uh, it certainly is compelling and I'm pretty sure all the other coaches that tried doing it besides Greg Popovich have kind of demonstrated it's a pretty bad idea so I think that's why it went the way that it did and I mean Brad shot down the idea that the bubble was too taxing on him and that's what made him want to code uh, leave coaching all that kind of stuff 
he said the while the bubble was certainly challenging that the basketball was the best he'd ever been a part of, which I guess Brad wasn't watching those the basketball then uh, at that point. But he um, he's spoken so much over the years about how taxing all this is on everybody. And many coaches have talked about that. And I think most coaches would rather put up with the craziness of the lifestyle and keep going with it. But we've also seen that generally coaches, when they get fired, I think most of the time tend to take a little bit of time off because it's so insanely taxing. So if a coach ever had an opportunity to step into the GM position, which is probably a little bit less taxing, and obviously you get to control your future probably more as a GM than you do as a coach, you get more stability and you get a little bit more of a normal schedule. Uh, I, I think pretty much every coach would probably jump at that as well, or just about every coach would jump at that as well. So I understand why Stevens wanted to do it. Right. And for from Stephen's perspective, like you brought the point, like it is less taxing, but it is still taxing. And I, I think that that is a real challenge. I wonder, I mean, his relationship with Danny Ainge, I'm guessing Ainge was honest with him. And I mean, we just saw, I mean, Ainge is at a different point in his life, but you know, the, the, the stress of his job potentially leaving, leading to his departure. And so it's funny, like, I agree with the flow chart that coaching is more stressful physically and mentally than being a general manager. However, it is also worth noting that their general manager is leaving because it's too taxing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Danny Ainge has been dealing with with these issues for a long time now. I think back when I was like in high school or something like that, he had a bypass surgery or something of that nature. I can't even remember. I should probably go double check. But I think this is something that's been an ongoing health issue for him. You know, but we also have seen coaches deal with health issues. I remember Ty Lu was dealing with uh, exhaustion and anxiety and stuff like that, I believe. Um, you know, everybody in this industry, it's very taxing. And now more than ever, it's easier to feel the pressure. So it's going to be really hard on everybody. Um, but Brad is younger. You know, he's like 20 plus years younger than age right now, I think. Um, and so and I, I think Steven seems to have a uh, a lifestyle and demeanor that I think will lead to better heart health because he's so insanely calm. I don't think his heart rate ever goes higher than 120, probably. Yeah, and it's, I mean, so that leads into what I think is the other fascinating question of this kind of twin decision, which is ownership giving Brad Stevens the keys to that part of the kingdom. And Stevens has been, I, I think he's been very good as a coach. And yes, it is true in certain circumstances. I mean, some would argue, I, I, I've heard some denigration of him as coach, which is a little bit surprising to me. But broadly speaking, as somebody who, you know, has followed the whole league now for a while, being a good coach and being a good general manager, in terms of the talent evaluation part of it, particularly like managing an organization, like that part of it, there's a, there are some real similarities, um, especially because many times you're dealing with the same human beings. But one of the most important things that general managers, a couple of them, are talent identification slash scouting, however you want, in, in the league and, you know, in, in other leagues, and also negotiating trades. And the Celtics, like, what makes this a little bit different to me, not to, like, put words in your mouth or to kind of fully set the table, is that I can understand making that sort of a change for a successful coach at a team that is, let's call it like lower upside. Like it's maybe it's like you, you're not going to have a chance to get the best general managers. Maybe that's your don't, your owner doesn't pay, doesn't pay big money or, you know, maybe your, your team's kind of locked up. So the best ones aren't really interested in the challenge or something else like that. Even though the Celtics, and we'll get into this later, are less flexible than other teams, I think of this as a, like, you know, in terms of ownership and everything else, as a very good job. And I wonder if they could have done better than a roll of the dice, even if they like Brad Stevens a lot as a person in a basketball mind. Well, 
they have Mike Zarin there, who at least in the trade negotiation and asset management category seems to be up there as one of the best in the league. Um, Masai Ujiri is basically a free agent or about to be. Uh, and I mean, every every team seems to want to throw an ownership stake out to be so good. So there's always that. And I think it was uh, I think Kevin O'Connor reported at the ringer that they made a run at Sam Presti who is a Boston area native and is obviously one of the best GMs in basketball. Uh, so I think it's possible that they tried exploring the best names out there. And then when they turned out not to be feasible, then that's when they realized they should go with Brad. And I'm sure they were probably considering Brad uh, throughout this whole process. Uh, but I've said this in a few different places. Um, I think that Brad has the, the personality and empathy and values that will allow him to be a great leader and have. And I think they fit even better as a GM, whereas a GM, I think you generally, and I mean, I could be wrong. I haven't been a GM before, believe it or not, but I don't think you need to manage the push and pull of pressuring and motivating your players and coddling and supporting your players as much as you do as a coach. And that seemed to be, at least this season, the biggest challenge was actually being able to push everybody and get everybody to be accountable. Yeah, they are very different challenges. And one of the shifts that happens, and this creates tension in basically every organization, and honestly, that tension is, is broadly a good thing, is the short view versus the long view. And so coaches, yes, they're, they're, you, you can do two things at once. You can rub your head and uh, tap your head and rub your belly at the same time. But there is always an inflection point where you're deciding between developing players on the court, you know, in those minutes, like how you apportion minutes. And the Warriors are in some ways the best example of this in modern vintage with like how to handle James Wiseman. And they had to de- decide whether they were going to give time to somebody better. And I think there are some people who see playing time as the only way that young guys get better. And that is absolutely not true to me. I think that that under represents the amount of value of coaching and practice and all the stuff that player development staff does and nutrition and everything else. But that transition, it's something Steve Kerr has talked about a little bit because he, you know, he did, I mean, Popovich, Popovich sort of made the transition. I mean, it's always been interesting in terms of titles and everything. He, he jumped, but he didn't totally jump. And he, but the general manager, except in very specific, you know, like let's call them LeBron-y circumstances where you're win now and that you're, the president is your only focus. You have to think about you're 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 an employee focused on the long term health of the organization, and maybe the long term health of the organization is centered on how you're doing right now. That happens plenty of times. The hope is always that your team is good enough to do that, and that I think is what makes it so different as a job. And and you're also managing different people, though in certain ways, you know, like in, in certain circumstances, management is management uh, in terms of like personalities and making sure people feel heard and valued and all that. But there are distinct challenges. And so I think what what's fascinating about Stevens in this is that the part of being a general manager that is like both being a like a CEO and also a middle manager at the same time, because while you are often running the day to day, you're also not the decider that's ownership in most circumstances. I think that he's very well suited for that from what I know about his coaching staff and the players and everything else like that. So that is a, as you were saying, that is a leg up. Um, but it is, it is, it's so interesting that I, I'm not saying it's, he's going to be bad or anything like that. 
It's that there's this other component. And I'm not like, we just don't know. And maybe the, and then that gets into the question that I, that we're, you're going to get with Zarin, which is, what is your read over these last 36 hours on what kind of turnover we're going to see both in the front office for the Celtics and also potentially in the coaching staff? Because presumably, you know, like you think about when a when a coach leaves and you have to promote somebody, whether it's from within or you hire a new coach, generally all the assistants are gone. But now these, it's still Brad Stevens there. So I don't know if this is going to be an anomalous situation. Yeah, so I guess starting with the coaching staff, um, I mean, I reported yesterday that they're going to start with interviewing the internal candidates. So Brad is going to interview his own staff, and then presumably they're going to move on to the external candidates. And I know all pretty much, I mean, everybody on the coaching staff right now has no idea what's going to happen. They presume that they're not going to be kept on by a new coach. It's very possible that I mean, this is a, a very rare circumstance. I. I'm trying to think of any other example of this besides like maybe Pat Riley, where uh, the longtime coach is ascending to the GM position and now has to decide who to hire and, and, and what uh, level of autonomy they get in building their own staff. Um, but uh, what do I say? The, uh, the the assistant coaches that are there, none of them have the level of, I guess, momentum behind them as a potential head coach as there are. on a, There's just a lot of other assistant coaches throughout the league that have more momentum behind them. So it seems like the organization would probably want to go there. But I mean, the org has been very, very uh, unique uh, in the way that they've cho- chosen their coaches in the past. Like Stevens came out of nowhere. Doc Rivers uh, had just gotten fired by Orlando when they uh, I mean Doc Rivers I think said the other day that Danny basically offered him the job like five days after he got fired which good for Doc Rivers he doesn't seem to ever have to wait to get hired after he gets fired he's I mean the last the last time he changed jobs it seemed like he basically got the other job before he left his then current one I'm pretty sure he did so Yeah. (laughs) yeah so um you know, they don't know what's going to happen to them. And, you know, uh, I'm trying to think. Stevens kept Jamie Young on from Doc Rivers' staff. So there, I mean, there's precedent for them keeping some of the assistants on for sure. Uh, and Stevens, I mean, Stevens has a you know a lot of talent in his coaching staff, video department, all that kind of stuff. And I think he's probably going to want to keep a lot of those people. Um, so I'm sure there'll be some sort of, you know, push well, and pull it, between. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting because I can also see Stevens. My inclination was he understands the value of that a coach values the autonomy of choosing their own staff like that he under he will understand that better so the push and pull is is going to be very different here because there are people he likes but there are also coaches especially if we're talking external who won't want that sort of input and that might end up changing how they think about the celtics as a job that's very true and I mean, I know that the the bottom line with the Celtics org, or at least with this ownership group, has been they 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 are really methodical in how they pick a person that they're going to entrust in the org, and then they stick with them. And maybe they've been able to stick with them because they made the right calls. But this is the second coaching change they've had in like twenty years. Basically, it's the first GM change they've had in about twenty years. So they they're a paragon of continuity, and I think that they're going to want to find the right person and then let if, if the right person is someone who wants to be able to shape things the way they they do then i think they're going to prioritize prioritize that over stevens protecting his former assistant coaches agreed and that gets into what i think is a, a really interesting kind of concept is we'll talk about the roster after but you know you've been around this franchise for a while now you know these players extremely well what do you think philosophically personality wise are the most important attributes for the next coach of the Boston Celtics to have. 
you know, people rely on the clutch of former player or crutch of former player too much, uh, but they're probably right. <laughs> and they probably need, I, I think the, like Kyrie, I think Kyrie just changed the direction of this franchise so much in that he came in and kind of showed all these guys that were super bought in that you don't have to buy in and you can still play great basketball. <laughs> it was, it was really bad. Um, like he was at odds with Stevens the whole time and uh, there will be more to come on that. I can, I can tell you, but uh, it, it didn't, it, it, I think I think it started off well, but it didn't hold up. Stevens was not able to hold him accountable, and Stevens was not able to get him on the same page. And we saw that with the way it manifested in that Buck series where Kyrie Irving had one of the most insane like series in basketball history. I've never seen anything like it before. Uh, he just kind of like he kind of like went completely rogue and like was holding a one man mutiny. Basically, it was insane. Um, and so that's been the struggle ever since is to try to get the best players to not only buy into the program, but be the ones reinforcing the culture. And that's really hard when your two best players are young guys who are relatively reserved guys who aren't culture setters necessarily. They're guys that more are going to work by example, but they're not going to be the ones really holding everybody accountable necessarily in that way. And so, and, and maybe they are a little bit more behind the scenes than they are on the court, but it seems like Marcus Smart and Kemba Walker and Tristan Thompson were the ones driving that for the most part this season. And so I think they're going to need a coach that can, that can get, especially Tatum and Brown to really want to take that role on. It doesn't mean Tatum needs to change how he leads, you know, and that whole, I don't know how much people outside of Boston have been paying attention to this, you know, this obsession with Jason Tatum needs to be uh, a more vocal leader and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't need to be super aggressive and hostile and loud, but he needs to be more communicative on the court than he currently is. He needs to be more engaged with his teammates than he is. Um, and they need to have, you know, I, I just usually a former player, especially one who can like say, this is how I was successful with it, where, you know, Chauncey Billups seems to be one of the leading candidates. Uh, Chauncey Billups was a pretty good leader uh, as yep. a basketball player. He would be the ultimate example of how to do it. Uh, you know, he was someone who his leadership and his effort was probably his most effective skill into becoming basically a Hall of Fame caliber player. So I can see why he would be such a prime candidate, but it doesn't mean they have to have that person. They just they have to have a person that can connect with the players and make the players feel like they have a partner and that the and therefore they're willing to let that person really lay into them and push them in a way that Stevens was able to early on. And it just didn't seem like it was working in the same way over the last year or so. That's a really good way of thinking about it. And in terms of basketball philosophy, Having two dynamic, talented, forward-sized players fundamentally changes a lot of that. Like, you can do a lot of different things. So I think there's a part of me that thinks a coach that is more malleable could be, you know, philosophically, not, you know, could could be good for them. But at the same point, versatility can also work with somebody who's less flexible, too. And if you want to run, you know, if you want to run a drop, pick, and roll, or you want to do anything like that, you can do it. And... The Celtics roster is a little bit more stable. I mean, those two guys are going to be locked up for the long term. We'll see what happens with Kemba. um, And then we'll see what happens with Marcus Smart eventually over time as well. But 
do you do you have it identified of like oh the Celtics should definitely like do this on defense or this on offense or are you kind of more in line with me where they can go in different directions and succeed? Um, I mean, it was just an effort and chemistry issue for them this year because like their talent on paper is, is really good. Still, they have the talent they need to be. They, they don't need to add more talent uh, on paper. It's that they clearly need to add more talent because the on paper was not translating at all. And a big part of that was effort level, uh, intensity, uh, understanding what everyone's role is. I mean, this was just the most confused Celtics team that I've seen in a long time. Um, and they just the guys that were good enough to be on the floor, a lot of them were too young to really know what they're doing beyond a couple specific things in their role. Like Romeo Langford, Aaron Neesmith, Peyton Pritchard, Grant Williams. I think they've all demonstrated, especially over the second half of the season, that they have enough talent that they can be good rotation players. But they're just still struggling to figure out how can I do more than the most basic thing that I'm tasked to do? And that's why veterans are important. Veterans, they're usually more dynamic. They have been around to be a part of different systems and have different roles and so they're able to thrive when the pressure kind of turns up um and so the celtics were just really badly missing that this season and they could get that back by just those young guys continuing to grow um but like you know and 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 kemba walker being healthy and rob williams being healthy and jalen brown recovering from his wrist surgery it could be all that and then they're really good again but i don't think anyone's expecting that to reasonably happen and i just don't think the celtics should count on that to happen and they should be more proactive at the same time being more proactive for the celtics is going to be difficult and their roster is less flexible partially just due to the salary structure so if we assume and i you can correct me if i'm wrong do you do you agree that it's a reasonable assumption that brown and tatum will be around long term yes so then when you think about the celtics roster then that's two huge salary chunks now that those guys are on their on their current contracts and the only other really big you know deal on their books is kemba walker and walker while still a talented player and and a useful part of a successful team his health struggles and I would say likely to continue health struggles, make him a negative value contract. And so the idea of really changing direction with him, I think is difficult. Now, that's not to say he's untradeable. He, he, he is tradable. But those are always harder to do if the player's a negative value contract. It's a lot easier to trade a $20 million guy that somebody else is happy to have than a $30 million guy that the market is going to be thinner for him. But to me, the more fascinating question for Brad Stevens to handle is, Let's assume Tatum and Brown are off the table. The Celtics still have this collection of young players who their future is brighter than their present. Robert Williams, Grant Williams, Romeo Langford, Peyton Pritchard, numerous others. Is how do you handle that? So it could be let's keep them, let's keep them all summer, all of them around. They can fit in in these different places. We can do these different things. But you could also use some of them as a way to either offload salary to improve other things and having a coach their coach be the person who is now making those decisions while also not being their coach anymore is going to be so much fun oh yeah for sure i mean i think i think the by the way i want to i want to talk about kemba's uh, value in a minute or i want to get your uh, perspective on it but I think that it's pretty simple is that everybody around Tatum and Brown is is, is very much expendable, uh, different degrees of expendability. If they can get another great player, like obviously Brad 
Bradley Beal is the most obvious one. But someone who's a current all-star is younger than 29 years old. They should just give up anything that they can to do it, I think, at this point. I don't think there's anything besides Tatum and Brown that's worth holding on to. Uh, you know, Rob Williams could be a like one of the better centers in the NBA. I mean, he is such a unique and fascinating talent, but he has not had a season without like persistent injuries that aren't even like uh, sudden freak accident injuries. They're more wear and tear injuries. And it's just it's disrupted every season for him. And they have to try to figure out an extension with him. I'd be pretty surprised if it happens just because I wouldn't want to extend him after uh, him getting hurt again. Uh, I'd rather wait and, you know, wait till free agency and if he's worth more he's worth more but you at least have more clarity then uh but so it's like there's nobody that's a sure thing outside of those guys and i mean i just remember when they traded for kevin garnett i was i was like 16 or 17 at the time so i didn't know what i was talking about but i'll just never forget how upset i was that they included ryan gomes in the trade at the end of the day that's that sounds and, that sounds like a take a take that uh, I, I I can I can imagine that though of course we didn't know each other then. <laughs> well, that's like the ultimate Celtics fan trade take. Like you know, some Celtics fans going to be like, you can't include Peyton Pritchard in the trade. He's too important for the future. He's not. You know, Ryan Gomes. While he should be in the Hall of Fame, unfortunately he's been snubbed. It's ridiculous. But like you know, Ryan Gomes had a couple nice years and then his career kind of withered away a little bit. Who cares? Like Etwan Moore was someone they had to tag into a trade. Dwight Powell, another example. This guys they basically had to give up for nothing early on and uh they both ended up having good careers uh abdul nader has been pretty solid too similar situation but like you don't miss those guys at all if what you get back is a great fundamental piece of your team and so i think the celtics they just need at this point to overpay like crazy for something great the problem for them is that there's just not a lot of uh, stuff like that out there right now that is one of the bigger problems and it's something nate duncan and i have talked about a lot And it's, you know, the dynamic in the league right now, and I think some of this relates to them tweaking the extension system, but I think a larger part of it is players through, you know, and I I fully support players, you know, exhibiting agency, having, putting themselves in the situation where they want to stay and then stay. And I mean, James Harden is a pretty extreme example of that when you think about what happened at the beginning of this season in Houston. And the point that you brought up about nothing else being nailed down, I think, is particularly salient. So Kemba Walker, we'll talk about him in a sec, $36 million this coming season, 37.7 the season after that. Then Smart and, Smart and Robert Williams, they're both under contract for next year, but Smart will be extension eligible. Robert Williams will be extension eligible. And squaring that, some of that is what are their demands? What What, what can they reasonably get? Big difference being... Robert Williams will be a restricted free agent absent an agreement, whereas Barker Smart would be unrestricted, and that makes a huge difference in terms of negotiations. But it's a lot for Stevens to handle in this new role where, yes, you have two fundamental pieces, both of whom are in their, you know, one, I would say one is in their in his mid-20s, and of course, Jason Tatum's still 18 years old, so you still got a lot of, a lot of place to go there. It's 19 years old. 19, right. sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, but so I, th- I think that it's going to be difficult to navigate and it like it to have this job for have this d- set of decisions in the hands of somebody who we've never seen make this kind of decision before is so different. Like I could have imagined kind of, you know, where Danny Ainge would go and the idea that probably this wasn't good enough. And so if Marcus Smart wanted wanted too much, maybe you don't bring him back. And also ownership's willing to suspend, which I want to talk about later. But with it being Brad Stevens, I have no damn idea. Well, okay. Uh, wh- what did you think of how Raphael Stone managed the James Harden trade? How he managed it? Well, so I, I think he got a very strong return. Now, 
the Victor Oladipo, Karis LeVert part of it didn't work out particularly well, but they got some real draft assets. I liked the way that the the Nets, well, they exploited the Nets' kind of aggressiveness in the present to get picks that are deeper in the future. And sometimes that's good for a, a, a pretty new GM because it gives you it gives you a little bit of time and sometimes, you know, going deep into the future, but like having having the Nets 26 first, having their 24 first and some swap rights, like it is entirely possible, and this is something I said at the time, it is entirely possible that this trade works out spectacularly for the Brooklyn Nets and those picks are still really good. So I I think it worked out pretty well for them. Now, yeah, the Levert the Levert Oladipo part of it stings, where you gave up a player who can who's on a reasonable contract who could help you or help somebody else. You know that you could have you know done the Sam Presti thing and acquired that player, then moved them eventually for something else. But the overall haul, even with that being let's call it a zero, still pretty good. So you know Brad's in a similar situation uh, uh, to a degree in which he has to fork out an insane amount possibly to a new gm in washington that you know that could be the case um and so on top of whatever they have to give up to try to get bradley beal you know there could be another player that could be the one uh they presumably also have to send kemba walker somewhere else which means they probably have to give up even more assets so you know they don't have the blue chip prospects to send out to washington so it's like they probably have to include five picks or whatever and then they probably also have to include several picks or assets to unload walker as well so it's kind of the question is how do they even possibly acquire one of those players yeah and like the other the other challenge for the celtics is you have this duality which i think is somewhat unusual where you have a foundation that is good enough to propel a competitive team i would say like by themselves depending on surrounding town probably not like a top tier title contender but maybe tier two depending depending on who you have around them but they're also young and under contract so I wonder, and in many ways, this is an ownership decision as much as it is a general manager. And also, as you were getting into a market based decision of just who in the world is available. And I think the Celtics should be more open to the idea of taking a year or two potentially to see what shakes out rather than it has to be all right now. But A, that's easier said than done. And B, there are certain decisions like the negotiations with Marcus Smart that probably will predate that should it happen. And Marcus Smart, if if he's a useful piece of a potential trade, and the presumption should always be that when a player signs a new contract that they will be reasonably valued on it. So then him being a value contract, the way Marcus Smart arguably is right now, he's making 14.3 next year. That's a totally reasonable price for a starting caliber player, or even a very good backup. And that is going to be difficult to reconcile because if it's it's better to go now if you can and you can get the right thing, but it's better to wait if the right thing isn't available. Sure. And like, I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just dump Kemba Walker right now because I think that they would be able to work out a way to move him when the time arises to bring in that kind of player. So I just wouldn't preemptively try to move on from him at this point because it's like his value can't get really any lower than it is now unless he has a traumatic injury where it looks like he's not going to be able to play anymore. You know, he's still he still is like a solid basketball player. He just isn't playing up to his contract. So maybe they just do have to stand pat. I just like, you know, they have another mid first round pick. I just got to 
hope they don't use that pick. I hope they're able to move that because they keep taking multiple first round picks every single year. And like they they don't they all they have. They have like five or six solid rotation players and, you know, coming through and they it's like they don't even need that many as is adding another one to the fold. It just seems like it's too much. Like at least try to consolidate with that regard. Yeah. Consolidate and build around semi Ojale. We're on board. I've been saying for years. Absolutely. Let's get you wanted to talk about Kemba Walker. Let's get there. Um, Kemba, when healthy, when available, I still think there is a valuable dynamic offensive player. I mean, going back to the 2020 series against the Raptors, we saw how Nick Nurse in many ways built struck built his defense around stopping Kemba Walker, despite the other talent that was on the team. The problem is, both from a Celtics perspective and in many ways, more importantly, from another team's perspective, is can you bet that he is going to be the kind of the the fulcrum for your offense? Because this year, Kemba played a little bit under 1,400 minutes. Yes, this was an abridged season to an extent, but... After playing 82 his his last year in Charlotte, and you know he was really durable those last few years as, as a Hornet, it's not a surprise that a, a, a smaller guard in their early 30s would break down a little bit more. And my concern is that, but more for him as a personal thing rather than like what it means to the teams or anything like that, is that you can't expect that he will be that guy again all the time moving forward. Which is fine because they don't need him to be what twenty eighteen nineteen. The Celtics, the Celtics don't, but another team might if, yeah. they, if they're trying to acquire him. Sure, I mean, you could see him going to OKC, where his job is mostly to mentor Shea. You know, like I, I could see that, um, and, and they just want to sit on that money and take in more assets and or use him to move again. But uh, there, it's hard to envision another team in the NBA that could take him on uh, on his contract right now. I just I can't think of anybody else. I. I can't either, but Kemba is in the he's in that group of players. Like I, I I've used Serge Ibaka as this proxy for a couple of years now, going back to them when he was traded from OKC to the Orlando Magic of a player who is good enough and well regarded enough that it wouldn't stun me to see somebody come out of the woodwork. Like sort of the spiritual analog to the Vucevic trade. Now Vuce's contract is more manageable and he, you know, made, made has made all star teams recently and everything else. But the challenge, like a weird challenge of it for Kemba is there aren't that many point guard needy teams. There are definitely some. But so the idea of point guard needy teams of a team that wants to be better, and that's what they're missing. You could make an interesting argument about the Knicks and Kemba Walker, Bronx native, like that. That is a is a possibility. But Kemba also makes a, a really large sum of money. And You'd rather have Derrick Rose, I think, at this point, right? I, I think you probably would. And and also like the Knicks, if if they want to do to devote some of their treasure, you know, they have this ungodly amount of cap space to a point guard there are other directions they could go you know they could go for kyle lowry they could go for mike conley maybe we'll see what the jazz do so i i'm open to being surprised because kemba is the type of player when you think of his track record that sometimes these these deals do come to fruition when they might not have otherwise but like you said, I don't know who that team is. And it's unfortunate for the Celtics that, let's say, like the Sacramento Kings don't particularly need a point guard. 
the Pels could use one, but I think they want somebody. They want somebody different, somebody who's more reliable, probably somebody who's a little bit younger. Yeah, I looked into the Pels. It, it seemed like there was an interest there uh, this off season when the Celtics were uh, exploring trading Walker more. So I, I assume that hasn't really changed. Yeah, and then like Cleveland has two point guards, so they're they're probably not they're probably not in that mold. And the Pacers at Brogdon, and I mean maybe Kevin Pritchard wants to change things around, but I don't think he wants to necessarily do that with with Kemba. Also, that upsets their apple cart financially. Well, and, I know the Celtics would love to get Malcolm Brogdon for Kemba Walker. They would jump at that. Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, and Brogdon would be actually a really good fit with with what they have offensively. He'd be perfect. And yeah. and so that gets sort of gets into the other giant question for the Celtics now and moving forward, which is ownership's willingness to pay. And there, it's always a complicated thing unless it's the Cronkies where you know they're not going to pay the luxury tax for really any reason. What is your read right now? And do you think it's dependent on how things go from here? Some, as I said, some decisions can wait a little bit like Robert Williams and everything else, but some like the trade exception, the remainder of the Hayward trade exception, what goes on with Evan Fournier, to an extent Marcus Smart, those decisions can't wait as much. I feel like they probably are either going to keep Fournier at something like 12 million ish, you know, something more reasonable, uh, or they're going to use, they're going to let him go and use the trade exception instead, which I think has 11 million left. Yes. I don't, basically, I think they're going to, what they're going to do is just try to not get to that next step of the progressive tax and keep their tax pretty minimal. Like the first um, or second level. Exactly. Yeah. Cause that's what, that's what trading away Tice at the deadline, which really hurt the team. Um, I think that, that was basically, we want to reset the clock on the repeater tax so that. That we at least can dip our toes into the tax for a couple years, and then when we're ready to take a huge step forward into it, we don't have to worry about the repeater tax making it extra punitive. That makes sense. I'm always skeptical of owners that you know get a, that sacrifice team quality to get a little bit out. But the Celtics have, I think, they've earned the benefit of the doubt in a way that Tillman Fertitta has not. And well, it was it was clearly the right move, right? Because they sucked. So it wasn't like it wasn't <laughs> like keeping Daniel Tice was going to change everything for them. So well, it, it was the right it, move. Yeah, and especially once Jalen once Jalen Brown got hurt. And with Tice, while I like him a lot, I don't know that having his bird rights would have been that huge an advantage when you think about where the big man rotation might go for the Celtics. Yeah, having having those is nice, but there's also a distinct chance that he just straight up leaves. They would have renounced his bird rights on the first minute of free agency because they got Rob and they paid Tristan Thompson and he's guaranteed next year. Right. So uh, they, there was no way Daniel Tice was staying. Daniel Tice deserves to get paid more than 10 million. I'm sure he will somewhere. I'm not sure that he will, but I'm also sure that I am sure that if it's even if it's around that range, he'd rather be somewhere with a clear line to regular minutes and being more prioritized by the organization. Sure. Yeah, I don't think, you know, Daniel Tice is the ultimate teammate and team player, but I think I don't think he would have been willing to resign knowing that Rob Williams is supposed to be taking over right, for him like, as, he, as he should be. Like the, an analog there, uh, Nate and I were talking about Josh Richardson recently, and I was positing the idea that he might opt out just because he can have a little bit more control over where he goes. And yeah, it's possible that Richardson gets, you know, similar money, but I would rather have that op have that flexibility. I don't want to use the word option in two different contexts. Um, have that flexibility <laughs> to to do it. And I, I could see a similar situation with Tice where it's just a, another team has a better overall offer. And with Tice also like he hasn't been in the league long, but he's in his late twenties now, and this is yeah. you know the uh, this is the opportunity. I don't know if that's going to be sticking in Chicago, but there should be something there for someone. 
Yeah, and I would be blown away if Josh Richardson uh, opted in. You know, with THJ being their priority, clearly uh, he's he's got to be leaving Dallas. I, I mean, especially when you consider his place in the rotation now. Like, I mean, if yeah. this season had gone differently, sure, maybe he, and maybe he even does what the rumors are that Chris Paul might do, where you opt out and resign just on a different, differently structured contract. But now, I mean, sometimes players are really risk averse, but option decisions for for challenging challenging option decisions are where agents are really valuable because you need to have an understanding of what teams are interested in how much they're willing to pay and this came up with marcus smart when he was restricted for agent years ago how high you are on teams lists because it's different when you're restricted restricted for agency is all about falling in love but if josh richardson is liked by a lot of teams but he's everyone's like fourth or fifth guy that could be a big problem for him it's true i mean he's with uh it's a bda i think so i'm pretty sure that they can collect the intel that they need yeah. to gauge the market pretty properly so i think he'll be a good answer unless there's a celtics related topic that you think we've missed i think we could kind of talk a little bit about the playoffs kind of we're we're getting there on the first round the eastern conference is done and dusted so we're going to have a really fascinating second round and then the west still have a lot lingering which we're going to have more clarity on thursday but what have been your takeaways so far actually before we get into that do we address rob williams extension talks enough well, what I'll say is with his injury history, it's a circumstance where, yes, the personal stuff is complicated. You know, you don't want to offend somebody where if I'm Brad Stevens, I'm only accepting and extending a very modest offer. Basically, the type of thing that even if this season doesn't go well, you'd still be OK with it on your books. You know, maybe that's in the like 10, 12 million dollar range. And I would I would make an offer with the understanding that Robert Williams almost definitely isn't going to accept it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would guess that they probably offer him 15 a year, but it's like 10 and then like 5 million guarantees or something, you know, something like that. It's going to be a very Some sort of protection heavily, on it. Yeah, it's going to be a pretty heavily incentivized deal based on his availability, I assume. Um, and probably some like all defense or blocks leaders, stuff like that uh, incentives as well. Yeah, and, and with, of course, would, with a minutes minimum. Yeah, <laughs> I think minutes per game is going to be the biggest one. Um, I wouldn't do it if I was him. I would I would wait the market out. I think he's talented enough that he can he can blow past the 15 million dollar line if he is fully healthy and takes another big step forward next year. And they actually build a team that can really utilize his strengths well. And he's not in that rotation with you know two other centers that don't really do much on the ball in the first half of the year. I, I just, there's so much upside for Williams for next season. I would probably just wait it out for him. Yeah, that's totally fair. Um, and then so as far as the first round, you know, maybe I'm being too pessimistic. But the honestly, the first thing that's, that comes to mind is that I've been disappointed that the quality of offensive execution hasn't really taken a nice step up in the playoffs the way I feel like it usually does. I, I just feel like there's been like a lot of still just very trigger happy, very sloppy, a lot of kind of wandering isolation where guys are picking the dribble up at the paint or leaving their feet and throwing it away. Something that just feels like it's more and more common these days. There, I feel like there's just been a lot of that in a way that it sticks out more this year than it has in the past. There's definitely some of that. I mean, it's interesting like that that my my first thought there went to Clippers Mavericks where there's been a fair amount of that at different moments in time though it has been like I would say at times it's been a well-defended series at times I thought the Clippers did a nice job in portions of game five but well, that's exactly the game I was thinking of yeah. last night was while, while I was saying that yeah I, I think for me unfortunately and this is 
far from a new revelation, but this is going to be another postseason shaped by injuries. And whether we're talking Joel Embiid, you know, his availability for the second round is very much in question. And it's not only availability in terms of whether he can be on the floor, but also what he is when he's on the floor. But we're already seeing that in the first round. I mean, LeBron and AD having limitations has changed things. And Chris Paul, like that series is totally transformed by injuries that predated the series and have occurred within it. And then that's going to be the case moving forward. And while there, it is unfortunate. And in an ideal world, you wouldn't have the postseason marred by such things. That also is just the nature of the beast. And it's, I wish it weren't the case, but it is. And I will appreciate what we have, like the healthier matchups. Like I think to an extent, Clippers Mavericks has been pretty healthy. It's been a very interesting, engaging series. Denver Portland has, you know, the injury predated the series. I mean, Jamal Murray, yeah. But also I think if Jamal Murray were in the series, it would be less competitive because he's the, the Nuggets just would have been way better. And it gave us playoff Austin Rivers, which is way more fun. Playoff Austin Rivers. And and so I think for me, what has been most fascinating, and I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts because you obviously watch more of the series that I'm thinking about when I make this, is some of the best teams look better. Like, you know, like there was an argument about who's tier one. And I mean, whether, you know, Bucks and the, the, the three East teams, Sixers, Bucks, Nets, there were arguments about various things. And so... The Bucks looked way better in round one than I anticipated. The Nets looked way better in round one than I looked better in round one than I anticipated. Now one of them is going to get knocked out. The other one, I would say, has to be the heavy favorite to make the NBA Finals when you consider the limitations of the of the Sixers and the Hawks or the other team there. And then in the West, so like in the East, I would say the best other than the Sixers look better. But in the West, no one's really moving the needle for me. And I think maybe hindsight will will make that feel differently, but like the Jazz had a nice series. I'm not saying anything about that, but they didn't fundamentally change the way I think about them. The Lakers Sun series has been interesting, but also with the lingering injuries that that doesn't really do anything. You know, Nuggets Blazers. I think either one of those teams is going to be probably the underdog in the next round, and then. You know, there was a point in time when I would have thought the Clippers were just going to shake all this off, and then they gave up a twenty a twenty three to five run in the third quarter, and now they're on they're on death's door yet again in a series against a team they should handle. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if just look looking ahead at the second round, if, if Dallas pulls it off, let's let's not assume they do. Um, Maybe even the Clippers as well. Having that matchup against Utah and Rudy's drop coverage is fascinating, right? Because we, we we've seen in the past how you know with James Harden the way that he was uh, able to attack that coverage. Having Luca or Kawhi do that it could be remarkable to watch, and it could be the kind of kryptonite that can actually disrupt Utah's super well-oiled machine. So I'm really excited about that, and obviously the Bucks Nets series is going to be unbelievable for so many reasons. Uh, but like, if Phoenix advances and then Chris Paul's still not 100, percent that'll just be such a massive letdown because I feel like. Seeing Phoenix with Chris Paul at the helm was probably the most exciting team to watch in the playoffs this year because it's such a cool upstart story and it's kind of like Chris Paul's last shot maybe to become a champion and really cement himself as one of the real all-time greats. Um, and so it would just be so diff- it would be so disappointing if they end up kind of falling off because he couldn't stay healthy. Agreed. And 
I've really enjoyed watching the Suns this year, and in the unusual circumstance of a young team where a lot of their core players haven't really been here before, to see them navigate that, but also having enough veteran, you know, like having Chris Paul there and then some of their other kind of support players, whether we're, we're getting all the way down to like Langston Galloway and stuff like they or Etuan Moore, that they've had, you know, little cups of coffee and stuff. But and Jay Crowder, of course. But I, I think that the you know the the idea that one of those two teams like that's i mean it, it happened and that's fine but like the disappointment that one of those two teams is getting knocked out and it and they're getting knocked out without having given their best shot is really unfortunate and like for example like if, as much as i've enjoyed and appreciate Jokic and Lillard this year i would rather have the Suns and Lakers if i could snap my fingers i would rather have the suns and lakers in the second round than either of those teams yeah i think those are probably the two most interesting teams in in the west so i for sure um but i I do think what's cool is we could get um a lot of really interesting center matchups yes and interior center matchups which i think is just a very interesting uh i guess curve on the sine wave of how the league evolves over the years where you know the center the center seemed to be kind of completely taken out of playoff basketball a couple years ago and we saw last year, most of these teams were playing micro ball in the games where they weren't even really playing with the real big. Um, I mean, the Lakers had LeBron, so LeBron could do whatever he wants. Uh, but this year, it seems like centers are kind of some of the focal points. And seven foot centers are the focal points of a lot of these series. And so I think that's one of the things I'm really excited to see is how does that evolve, especially where, you know, like, is DeAndre Ayton going to continue to be ruthlessly efficient? And, it, you know, especially if those games get tight in the next round and Phoenix is, is there, how much is him being out there going to be a hindrance or how much are we going to see can a seven footer survive playing in crunch time in a major playoff game and it, there's an interesting parallel on the other side of the west bracket where the jazz have made it through and they had that nice nice five game win over the memphis grizzlies who were competitive in game until game five and then they were knocked out and the series and everything else for the jazz changes so dramatically based on who wins that four or five because how you defend the mavericks how you defend the clippers and how they defend you are so insanely different and now with mike Conley's hamstring soreness is what it was called when he left game five being lingering like i think i mean i know that the the mavericks winning games game five was a really good thing for for utah because now it either goes it goes seven dallas wins or both i mean i think dallas is the more advantageous one though if luca plays the way he did the first half yesterday who who knows but (laughs) the idea that to use um long time friend of the show arturo gulletti's well he uses it i mean other people do too if styles makes fights we're going to see a lot of shifting sands and i mean the nets the nets buck series is an example that we already know but like where things go in the west like i'm going to feel so differently depending on who makes it who makes it through yeah that's true and i mean the one thing i haven't really seen a lot yet and i'm wondering how much that'll change i guess now that we're getting deeper into some of these series or that we're going to just have more competitive series in the next round is how these teams reshape and evolve throughout a series because I think that's the most for us basketball junkies who obsess over X's nose that's the most interesting thing it's not necessarily the the great matchups it's more about how do they change their defensive schemes and their offensive styles what kind of plays are they running and stuff like that so yeah and like who in the world is going to be the fifth beetle for the Nets like that's one of the big ones that we're going to see over the course of that series yeah I don't know who is I mean Bruce Brown was uh, (laughs) he was their best center in the Celtics series but I don't know if that's going to work when uh, Brooke Lopez and Bobby Portis and Giannis are on the floor most of the time. I'm wondering if it means the triumph triumphant TBD return of DeAndre Jordan, just because defending Giannis is a really 
different challenge. And maybe Durant takes some of it on. I, I mean, how do you approach it from a switching system? I'm so excited about that series. Yeah, you know, that, that's a good question because so they were able to get away with switching against the Celtics relentlessly because Tatum couldn't score 100 points a night. I mean, he tried, but he got close one uh, one time. But you got you got literally halfway there one time. Um, but the, like the Bucks are just so much better, and Giannis can do it himself. And then they have so many other great players well, and, around, and them. they're so much better top to bottom. Like part of why that worked against the Celtics was they didn't have other players that could really step into the second and third mantles. Milwaukee has that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Tatum was playing pretty Giannis-esque in that series and that he got to the line like 100 times, basically. Uh, I think he went 17 for 17 in their last game in uh in, uh, in in Boston, so I mean, he was punishing them uh, for attacking, but I think Giannis can do it still, even in a way that is at a different level. And then just obviously his driving, you know, the driving kick impact of Giannis doing it with that Bucks roster is just so much greater than Boston doing it. So the Nets are probably going to have to get off of switching at some point and keep KD on him. And to KD's credit, while Tatum did have some remarkable games in that series. But Katie's defense on him was absolutely phenomenal. I agree. And that's that's why it was good for the Celtics, especially when Tatum went for 50 to have, try to get Tatum on other guys. I thought that worked out a lot better. And there is this, like, I, I'm open to the possibility, and this happens every so often, where the second round is better than the third. Where, I mean, there was, there was the time that you had that kind of, you had the Warriors-Blazers conference finals that wasn't particularly memorable. It's, it's happened to different iterations. And Embiid kind of crystallizes that to me that I think on the, in the East the you know the real conference finals is going to be occurring starting on Saturday and the West we'll see it might be it might end up being that way too but it also might not just depending on kind of how this shakes out I mean there is a possibility that I mean depending on who gets back from the Lakers Sun series and everything else it, it's going to be fascinating yeah I'm <laughs> I, I'm I'm just kind of overwhelmed by all of it at this point honestly it's just it's uh, it's been it, it, I don't know why, maybe because last year we adopted to the bubble having the kind of March Madness style schedule, but there's just been so much truncated into like that five hour span every single night. It's just been impossible to keep track of. So I guess I'm almost looking forward to it um, distilling down to just the best teams uh, because we'll be able to focus a little bit more in on it. Yeah, absolutely. Never having more than two games in a night is something I am desperately, desperately looking forward to. No, <laughs> you no, don't say. No, no conflicts, no I mean, minimal overlaps is going to be is going to be awesome so i think that's as good a place as any to end uh thank you so much for taking the time to come on thank you sir thanks again to jared weiss for taking the time to come on you can read his work at the athletic and especially now there's a lot of, of great stuff out there that you can check out also if you don't already you should follow him on twitter at jared weiss mba j-a-r-e-d-w-e-i-s-s-n-b-a love having him on and getting a clear sense of where everything is for the organization and i love talking with jared anytime but especially now to get that kind of clarity if you want to support the show there are a lot of different ways you can do it you can subscribe, download every episode. That is particularly good for Real GM Radio because it will never come out on a specific day of the week. And sometimes that works out because then we can get things like this with, with Jared. But that's why subscribing, downloading, whatever podcast player you use, 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. That's really appreciated. Also, you can support this by leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player for choosing. That really does help us out as well. And word of mouth, you know, anything like that. You can also check out my other work, Dunked on Prime and Dunked on Regular, let's call it. Um, Nate and I are going hard. I mean, one time a week public and then as many times a week for Dunked on Prime as we pretty much can, which has been really fun, but also hectic during this. And also Nate and I are doing the NBA cast. We're using Hot Mic, which is this really cool technology. People are really enjoying it. It's a better way of syncing our audio with your video if you're watching the game, so you can watch it and listen to us roughly three times a week on that, and you can also check us out on Locker Room. That is weekly. Generally, it's Tuesdays at 6 Eastern and 3 Pacific. That might move around depending on game times and stuff, but generally, that's it. You can also check our, our Twitters for all that. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. And we'll be back next week. I don't know exactly where we'll go, but there's always there's always somewhere to go. And that's the fun of the NBA playoffs. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.